Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Carmichael Clan Radio, the official podcast of the Carmichael Clan USA. I'm your host, Scott Carmichael. On today's show, the Clan Carmichael USA newsletter editor, Leah Hargrove, talks with West Point professor of history and Hundred Years' War scholar, Dr. Clifford Rogers, about the Battle of Beauget of 1421. They begin with a fascinating discussion about the history of the garter, or belt, that appears in almost every family and clan crest, and then move to talk in-depth about the Battle of Beauget. For Carmichael's across the world, the Battle of Beauget is one of the most significant events in our clan history, and is the battle from which we were presented our family crest that depicts a broken spear, symbolizing the dehorsing of the Duke of Clarence, who was the brother to Henry V, by Sir John Carmichael. Before we get started, I want to take a minute to remind everyone that the redesigned Carmichael Clan USA website is up and running. You can now join or renew your membership to Carmichael Clan USA from the website. Find out more about the Carmichael Clan's history, as well as learn about what's going on now in the Carmichael Clan and how you can become more involved. The new site is a huge improvement from the old site, so at the very least, go take a look around and let us know what you think at www.clancarmichaelusa.com. And now let's get started with the show. Professor Rogers, this is Leah Hargrove. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thank you. So, um, you said in your email that you had recently published a a joke related to the garter and the Carmichael family crest, and I was very intrigued about it. Mm. Well, so of course the the garter in the Carmichael family crest is the same as everybody else's garter. There's you know tons of crests with garters, mm-hmm. uh, and that all comes from obvious. Well, I, I I think it's fairly obvious that that all comes from the order of the garter mm-hmm. in England, um, and uh, so nobody really knew uh, where, why there was a garter in that, why the order of the garter was the order of the garter. They knew why there were crests with garters, and there are a million of them. I mean, I think Budweiser has one. Um, but uh, nobody really knew why uh, Edward III, who founded the order in 1348, um, had picked that as the symbol for the order. And that always... I have always wondered... Yeah, yeah, and uh, it seems strange to people. Um, and in the, in the 15th century, uh, actually, or maybe even in the late four, in the late 14th century, um, there were stories that started to circulate that it was about a a ball, and uh, one of the ladies of the court uh, lost her garter and it fell down, and he picked it up, and then said, uh, as it says on the on the garter in the the order of the garter symbol. Um, shame on he who thinks evil of it. Um, but it was totally a uh, a story that was invented uh, to explain, uh, you know, it was sort of going from the symbol and making up a story to make sense of it, like like you mm-hmm. would do in a myth. But it wasn't true at all. Uh, and the uh, uh, reason they came up with that story and the reason they were so puzzled is because uh, even by the late 14th century, and certainly in the 15th century, uh, a garter was a, as it still is, 
an, an item of women's underclothing, and therefore <laughs> seemingly very strange uh, uh, choice of um, the symbol for a chivalric order. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, uh, in Edward III's youth, and even still in 1348, um, both men and women wore garters uh, to hold their hose up, and men wore them because they usually had, you know, short surcoats. Uh, they would wear them visibly. So there are a number of uh, garters in royal financial accounts that were purchased for Edward III and his relatives that are, you know, jeweled and cloth of gold and so on. They were very fancy, and because um, they were meant to be seen, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the Duke of Lancaster, uh, who was Edward III's sort of chief lieutenant, uh, wrote a uh, Livre de Saint Médecin, uh, a book of holy medicine, which was a allegorical treatise about how uh, to ward, you know, to keep evil out and, and be a, a good Christian, basically. And uh, one of the things he mentions in there is how, as a youth, you know, in vanity, he was very proud of how his garters set off his calves. Um, and so, like I said, that, so it, it wasn't a, a, a an item of women's underclothing, so that whole story is nonsense. And then you're back to, well, so why do they have garters? And uh, if you think about it, um, what is the definition, how would you define a garter? Let's see, something that holds up articles mm-hmm. of clothing on your legs. Right. Something, but what? A band, a, a belt, perhaps. Exactly. It is a band that holds something up. And that is what the order garter of the garter was. It was a band of knights who upheld Edward III and particularly his claim to the French throne. And so the motto, Aniswaki Malipense, is shame on him who thinks ill of What's the E? What's the it? It's ah, the claim to the throne. Throne, yeah. Very fascinating. Thank yeah. you. I have always wondered about the order of the garter, and and was familiar with you know the fact that men and women both wore them at some point, but it still seemed like a sort of insignificant piece of clothing to base the chivalric order around. So it's a pun, and uh, there are many of the other um, orders of the time also used uh, puns and also variations. on. So there was an order of the knot, for example, K-N-O-T. Um, and it, it's both a, uh, uh, it's the same idea of the ties that bind um, or or uphold. And, and of course, the garter is, just, is depicted as um, a knightly belt, really, um, is why it takes that particular form of a garter. So there's a lot of symbols in it, but the core is that it's a, a band that upholds, which, by the way, is a, a uh, pun that works both in, in French and in English, and Edward III was bilingual. Oh, that's also fascinating. What was um, what would be the word for garter in French? Jarretière, uh, but that, that's not the uh, the pun part. The pun is that a band is also... Ah, uh, a band. That's the same, certainly. Right. Well, I think that's very... I, um, I'm fluent in French, although my pronunciation is it's pretty heavily Southern American still. Um, <laughs> and I, I really enjoy, um, p- particularly looking in, in words related to the nobility, how much back and forth there is um, 
well, it's probably not so much force from the from the English, but how much French that there is in in English. Um, so anyway, that's fascinating. Thank you. I'm an amateur linguist, and I really enjoy learning those kind of things. I don't know if you know this, but Edward the Third, so who, who reigned from 1327 to 1377 is actually the first king of England after the conquest that we know spoke English. That's fascinating. I knew it was a long time before um, the Norman kings began to pick up in English, but I did not know it was that long. I mean, Now, it's possible that some of the others did. It's just we don't have any evidence that they okay, did. Okay, that that's who's confirmed. Yeah, with Edward III, he actually had personal mottos that were in English, and he so allowed the use of English in the law courts for the first time since the conquest. Um, when we're thinking then, this is, sorry, I'm getting off track, but I, I have to know now. Um, Edward Longshanks, that's the second, right? That's the first. He's the first. That's right. Okay, Edward the first. So it might have been unlikely then that he spoke much English. I mean, I suppose he could have, but. Right. It's it's quite possible. I would, I would put it this way, that we have no evidence that he did, and it's quite possible that he didn't. Mhm. It's just so interesting to me because um as a Scot, you know, he's really the quintessential bad guy. Um yep. but sure. to to think of him really as and I'm sure as maybe if he thought of himself as more of a a Frenchman or at least more of a Norman than as an Englishman. Yep. Hmm. It's so fascinating. So I was I was brushing up a bit on the the 100 years war before I called you cuz I didn't I didn't want to be completely ignorant about the the surrounding events of the battle. Um and I, even though, even though, of course, it's called the Hundred Years' War, I was still blown away at, about just how much history is involved in there. Um, I, I lived for a while in Angers, France, and became familiar with the Plantagenet family, and, um, and of course, all the, their famous descendants, and, and so many of those names kept cropping up, and um, uh, a lot of famous, of course, English combatants, and then all the way down to Joan of Arc, who's one of my favorite humans that's ever existed. It was crazy just how many big players were involved in, in this back and forth between English, England and France over this time period. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's nuts. Um, you know, it's funny, you're you're talking about the the crest, and, and obviously for for Carmichael's, that's our, I think, like I mentioned, our big claim to fame that we got. We were presented the family crest, so the family legend goes, by the French because Sir John Carmichael unhorsed the Duke of Clarence at this at this skirmish. But I was just talking to my dad, and my dad was in London um, a few years ago, and he said that up in the Tower of London, there's a some sort of model. I don't know what it's made out of or how old it is, but there's a model of that skirmish and the unhorsing of the Duke of Clarence. And this description of the model describes the man that horsed him as a Frenchman and not as, as our family, and it just assumes that everybody knows, was a Scottish Carmichael. And so, so my dad said, well, be sure to ask Professor Rogers, um, you just how sure are we that Sir John Carmichael did the unhorsing? Because clearly in the Tower of London, where you think the experts would be, they've attributed it to a Frenchman. And I don't know if that's um, kind of some politicizing after the fact to make it look better, have a better light on the English or not. Um, or if there is some dispute that the Duke of Clarence was unhorsed by a Scotsman at all. Um, I, to the best, I mean, I so I have not researched that question. Um, but from my recollection, uh, there is I, there is some dispute about who killed him, and there are yes. several comments to that, including that it was a Frenchman. 
Um, but uh, I don't think, I didn't think there was any dispute. Now, to say that there's no dispute doesn't mean um, that everybody agrees. It just means most sources are silent, right? Um, mm -hmm. There is a source uh, that says that Carmichael did it, and I don't think there's any source that says he didn't. That's about what I've seen, too. And like you said, there are disagreements about who actually did the killing, which kind of brings me to a, a next question. So um, I know from, from doing my research on the battle that, and battle, of course, is a strong word, but um, that the Duke of Clarence rushed into it and was ill-prepared and, and didn't take um, as many men as he should have taken. Um, and so in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to picture a little bit about what, what it would have looked like. I know there was there was a bridge, and the Scot Scottish armors kind of held off English for a little while until they crossed the bridge. But then at some point, there is this seminal moment for my family where there are two knights on horseback with lances. Um, would it have been pretty common during this time period that while well, like a, a battle is is raging on, that knights would be charging each other across the field? I feel like you know I, well, most people's exposure to it is American movies where sort of everybody stands back while the knights do their thing. Um, uh -huh. What would it really have, have looked like if somebody had been there? Yeah, so um, there are medieval battles at which uh, there are sort of like the duel between champions, between the hosts, uh, between the armies, uh, but this wouldn't have been one of them. Um, mm -hmm. So the um, so the normal way, let me, let me, so in the Hundred Years' War, by this point of the Hundred Years' War in particular, in the 15th century, um, when it came to actual battles, the fighting was mostly done on foot, even by the men mm -hmm. at arms. Um, so for, at the Battle of Agincourt, just a little bit before Bauget, for example, uh, all of the English men-at-arms were fighting on foot. So the men-at-arms are, are what you would think of as the knights. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, most of them are not knights because knight is a very uh, is a pretty high social rank and economic rank. Um, and by the 15th century, most are actually esquires. But but mm -hmm. the guys with armor and horses and the ability to fight on horseback whether they're actually knights or not, are called men-at-arms, uh, which you would know in French as gendarme. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, by the, so at, at the Battle of Agincourt, all of the English men-at-arms fought on foot, and 90% of the French men-at-arms fought on foot. And then the other 10% tried overrunning the uh, English archers um, on horseback and, and all got just shot to bits. Um, so that was, and that's one of the main reasons why everybody was fighting on foot by this point. <laughs> is because the horses were too vulnerable to arrows. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas by this point, um, men at arms were wearing basically full plate armor. And while they weren't completely invulnerable to arrows, uh, they were also not super vulnerable to arrows. Um, so most arrows that hit a, a guy wearing full plate would not would, would just glance off um, mm -hmm. or 
fairly penetrate and not do a lot of damage. Um, but if you were on a horse and your horse gets shot, you know, your horse is not going to be fully protected the way a man can be. Um, mm -hmm. So therefore, it was better to fight on foot. So the Scots um, had, had done this. They'd been, they'd been fighting the English, obviously, in, in England as well as, uh, and in Scotland as well as in France um, for a long time, and they, they knew all about that. Um, there had been a battle just a few, well, about a decade earlier, I guess, uh, where, uh, well, almost two decades earlier, where the, the Scots had gotten a bunch of really good armor from France and thought that would be good enough, and uh, they, they found out that although they were not as vulnerable, they were still vulnerable enough, and they, they lost. Um, but uh, so, so probably the way that the uh, Franco-Scottish men-at-arms would have prepared to meet uh, Englishmen charging towards them would have actually been on foot with their lances um, pointing forward, at basically almost like uh, a Greek phalanx. Mm -hmm. And probably, and if they saw uh, Clarence and the other English men-at-arms charging them on horseback, which was a very unusual thing for the English to do in an actual battle, even more than it was unusual, even more than the French, right? I mean, there were some battles where the French, like at Agincourt, you know, at least some of them were charging on horseback, same at Poitiers or Crecy, um, whereas the English normally fought entirely on foot. Um, but in skirmishes and meeting engagements, both sides might well launch a, a cavalry attack and try and get advantage of surprise, as, as happened here. Um, and so this was kind of a real turnaround that, that here the Franco-Scottish army was on the defense, not the offense, and uh, um, that the French, the English were not only attacking, but attacking on horseback. Um, and so the natural response would have been to, to as you may you know sort of be familiar with from from Bannockburn for example it's the same basic idea you form a solid formation and you uh, face pikes or lances outward you ground the lances and uh, if the horsemen charge you then you will probably run away because it's very scary but if you mm -hmm. don't if you don't run away then uh, the horse can to impale himself uh, mm -hmm. on your and that could very well be how he broke his lance rather than in a um, joust mm -hmm. but it could also have been um, so if you were you know if if the if the uh, Franco-Scottish army was on the march, and Clarence gets wind of them and charges towards them, it would also be a very credible response for uh, if you had, you know, a few of your men-at-arms mounted to essentially counter-charge and try and slow them down and buy time for the men behind you uh, 
to rally, and especially with the bridge, you know, that would make sense in terms of uh, that's basic tactics is uh, if you've got sort of a hard shell defense and if you can put somebody to counterattack behind it, cavalry is very good for that. So as somebody breaks through uh, the Scottish archers by the bridge, you know, they're out of formation, they're disordered, and then you counterattack them with a cavalry attack in order. Um, that would also be um, a, a way that that could easily have played out. Now, as mm. to which, which of those it was in this case, hmm, I would have to, I think it's Bowers Scott Chronicon that describes that, and although uh, I should have like tried to read that again before <laughs> you called, um, I didn't. Um, but I could I can check on that and let you know. Sure, thank you. That would be fascinating. Um, certainly for the clan Carmichael, we prefer to picture it as as two knights in resplendent armor charging each other across an empty field. But I suspected that was probably more fantasy than it was reality. Anyway, whatever the truth is, I'm sure it's fascinating and probably buried under many layers of history. You you'd mentioned the Scottish ar archers. Um, and I'm curious because I, I know that the, the English archers were just a, a devastating um, force and that the only reason this skirmish really went in the um, French and Scottish favor is because Clarence left his. Um, so, so two questions of that. How did Scottish archers at the time compare to English archers? Because certainly they were engaged with each other a lot and were close to each other. Had, by this time, had they caught up in skill and technology? And why did Clarence leave his archers if they if they really were the the strength of the English army? Uh, well, because he was a fool. <laughs> it's the short answer. Um, but uh, so it was basically an idea that by going forward. So one of the things is that that in the in this whole phase of the war after Agincourt, uh, the French tended to avoid battle. Um, and so it's a little bit like Custer at Little Bighorn. He was like, okay, <laughs> I got to go forward. I got to charge. I got to get them before they get away. He was more worried about them getting away than he was about them, uh, beating him. Mm. Um, and so with his, uh, mounted men-at-arms, the English, um, could uh, just basically charge forward uh, at speed and try and take the advantage of surprise and um, make sure that they engaged before the enemy got away. And so he's underestimating his enemy, basically. Mm. Um, and you know, if he'd been right and he'd sort of hit them and they all then ran away, then he wouldn't have needed the archers. Um, but uh, he wasn't. Um, so that would be why, he, yeah. So that didn't answer your other question about how effective were they. Um, so it's not a matter of technology. Um, the technology is a stick. Um, 
and and there would be no difficulty in uh, except maybe in getting long enough stays of you, which the English were importing and they were getting pretty expensive, and the Scots didn't have so much money. Um, but mm -hmm. it's, but but um, the the problem with having a really strong bow is not the bow; it's the archer. Um, it's having somebody strong enough to use a really strong bow, and the English had that as essentially their national sport. Right, it's what everybody did for their hobby, and uh, there were laws that said you should do that every Sunday after church, and not play golf or soccer, um, it, because that would just be a distraction. Um, and uh, so the English uh, really had it had become a cultural thing that you grew up getting stronger and stronger bows as you got older um, and uh, the English were famous all over Europe for the strength of their archers. Um, a, a Italian who visited um, England in four, the 1480s met some archers and this was not, you know, just some clerk or something. This was a soldier. And when mm -hmm. he met English archers, uh, he was there as an ambassador, uh, he wrote back and he said that these are not men like other men. They have hands and arms of iron. Um, so basically nobody was the equal of the English archers. Uh, however, uh, the people who had been um, and, and so actually let me backtrack for one little second there that the reason that the English bows were so long and, and one of the reasons they were so powerful is because you can only draw an arrow um, that is half the length of the bow. Um, uh -huh. if you, so if it's, a, if it's a single wooden stave bow like the English and Scottish bows are as opposed to a composite bow like a Middle Eastern archer might use. Uh, because the, obviously the farther you pull back the arrow, the longer the arrow is, the farther you pull it back, the more your bow has to bend, right? And the longer mm -hmm. it, the less bend it takes. I mean, if you think about just bending a twig, you can sort of easily see that, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, how far can you bend it before it'll snap? It's about half its length. And so if you have a long bow, you can have a long arrow uh, that you can draw all, a long draw. So the English archers would draw all the way back to their ears, which is a longer draw than most other people did, which was to their chest or their chin. And uh, so that means you're exerting force, and not only that, but the force is increasing. Uh, the farther back you draw, um, you're, you're, it, each inch that you draw is harder than the previous inch because you're against more leverage of the spring. Mm. And so you're putting in more and more energy. Um, and then, of course, the amount of energy you put in is the amount of energy you get out when you release it. Um, so by this point, the Scots and also the Picards, for example, um, there, there were at least some of them also using long bows um, that were much like English long bows with long arrows, but they just tended not to be as thick. Um, 
the thicker it is, the stiffer it is, the stiffer it is, the harder it is to pull back, the harder it is to pull mm -hmm. back, the more energy you store by pulling it back, and the more energy you get in your arrow when you release it. Um, so the Scottish archers at this point were uh, respectable archers uh, and better probably than, say, crossbowmen. So in, in earlier, mm -hmm. earlier battles, um, the French had tend to rely on uh, Italian crossbowmen or urban crossbowmen. Um, but uh, uh, the Scottish archers were certainly effective enough um, that they could um, be very effective against the English horses. So in the fight at the bridge, um, at least according to the Liber Plus Cardensis, uh, the, that was actually the, the Scottish archers did stop Clarence's cavalry uh, from crossing the bridge uh, by arrow fire. And then um, Clarence and company uh, dismounted, fought their way across on foot uh, over the bridge. Now, they may uh, or may not have... Um, mounted back up after getting their way across the bridge. Um, so if they didn't, then then the whole story, the whole Carmichael story, you know, <laughs> kind of is <laughs> out. Um, and, you know, anything you get from a medieval battle when you have one source, um, Uh, that 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 claims it, you know, you don't necessarily know if that's really true. Um, mm -hmm. And and so, for example, also with the Carmichael thing, um, in uh, Bowers Scotta Chronicon, uh, it actually says uh, that a different Scott. Um, uh, wounded Clarence in the face with his lance. Um, and then uh, the Earl of Buchan uh, struck him to the ground with his mace. So um, so we don't, honestly, we don't really know, right? I mean, there, there are different mm -hmm. ways it could have played out. The sources aren't don't really agree with each other. There's no obvious way to say that X source is better than Y source for the, these particular details. Um, and uh, so one can sort of keep your your clan story as as good as any of the others. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so it is certainly possible that uh, if we take it as, as read that uh, Carmichael did indeed unhorse Clarence with his lance, uh, that would suggest that Clarence 
you know, fought his way on foot across the bridge, remounted, you know, horses carried after him, remounted and charged forward, which is perfectly credible, and then uh, essentially was, essentially ran into Carmichael, either charging uh, against him on horseback or uh, creating a barrier as part of a formation on foot. Mm -hmm. Do we do we know anything about John Carmichael before this battle? I mean, I realize this is <clears throat> way back, but um, I struggled to even really kind of find what his standing was in Scotland beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, short answer is I do not know the answer to that. <laughs> I'll accept um, it. I believe there was a there was about the same time there is a uh, another Carmichael who is actually made the bishop of one of the towns in France. Orléans, um, I believe. I'm sorry. Say that again. Orléans. Of Orléans. Mm -hmm. um, if that's true, um, then, and I'm just doing a quick look to see if I can find it, um, that would certainly indicate that the Carmichaels were, um, huh, well, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, so apparently that is actually the same John Carmichael. I wondered. I, I saw that, and then um, in the same source I saw that, that he was likely present at the coronation of the Dauphin a few years later. And, I, and of course, this really shouldn't be shocking to me for medieval Europe, but it, it just seems unlikely that you would take somebody off the battlefield and then make him a bishop. I can't imagine the qualifications were always yeah. a perfect match. That That is... Uh... Unusual. That's why I thought it was probably a. It's not. It's not unheard of. Um, but uh, it is unusual, um, and it's also not unheard of for clerics uh, to um, hang on. Let me see. Uh, it's not not unheard of for clerics to um, actually fight, even though it was mm -hmm. forbidden by canon law. It, it did certainly happen. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, but the, well, so I, I'm not going to. I said that I, it looks like it is the same one, but I, that's not in a. I would have to look into into it to really see if that's true. Uh, but I, I think the bottom line is it, there's a clear indication there that the uh, Carmichaels uh, were already um, prominent in Scotland, and that. Um, And that also, um, 
the, the John Carmichael who uh, was involved here, you know, he was clearly there as a man at arms uh, if he was breaking a lance, which uh, Bauer does say, um, he, he, which would have been, you know, not just like some member of the family, but he would have been um, a, a very senior member of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was curious to me when I was reading um, that, that perhaps he become Bishop of Orléans in trying to wonder, so I don't know exactly what he was in Scotland, but he certainly wasn't a duke or an earl. He was not no, particularly no. elevated. So I think it would be a major upgrade then to find yourself bishop of a large city in France. And um, if it was me and I had to pick between going back to the uh, soggy moors of Scotland or staying in Orléans, I would stay in Orléans. Um, although I wouldn't wonder if, at that time, I suppose the bishopric would have been a celibate position, yes? Uh, yes, certainly should have been. It should have been. <laughs> That's uh, right. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just Yeah, it seems like a, a very strange jump for someone to make, although it's certainly a high honor to do so. Yeah, and um, of course there were, you know, not more than a few, uh, you know, bishops were usually aristocrats, and there were, were more than a few of them who, or that a few martial aristocrats who um, at some point in their careers became more, more commonly monks mm-hmm. um, than anything else, but sort of retired to a religious life. And uh, some of them then went on to become uh, bishops. Hmm. I'm wondering if the... Um I can't remember exactly, Twelve to 15,000 Scots that, that went over to France um, around 1420. How many of them would have been men-at-arms and um, sort of, I guess, people of some economic means? And how many would have been regular lay people that, um, I don't know if they would be conscripted or volunteered or what, but um, I'm just thinking about, like, the, the archers. I don't typically, and I could be wrong in this, I don't typically think of an archer as someone very high up in society compared to, say, a gendarme. Um, right. What would the breakdown have been like of all those men going over? Um, it would have been just a small fraction would have been uh, men at arms. Um, the the great majority. I mean, like probably. Uh, I, I would. Yeah, don't quote me on this because I I don't I would have to like to look to see if there are any numbers in the sources, but. Or just, just sort of give you a sense. Um, it would be surprising to me if more than uh, a thousand uh, of hmm. them were arms, and and the rest uh, archers. Now, when when they call them archers, many of those would have been actually archers, um, but uh, sometimes they would also call people archers who actually were billmen or spearmen. Um, mm. So, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, because archer was sort of the, the category, the pay category, essentially. Um, oh, okay. But uh, generally, they, they probably would have been archers. Um, but okay. archers have been able to, 
you know, they wouldn't have been just archers. They probably would have had swords uh, and light armor and been able to fight hand-to-hand uh, under the right circumstances. But the French didn't really need, even at this point, um, you know, they had uh, lots of men-at-arms. They had more men-at-arms than the English did by far. Um, so I think they would have, partly they would just interested in having more bodies, you know, just more men. Um, but uh, the Scots just didn't have very many men-at-arms at all, you know, even compared to the English, much less compared to the mm -hmm. French. It's just too expensive, and Scotland was poor. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and whereas the, the French did not have an archery tradition like the Scots, just basically from proximity and fighting with the English, had by this point uh, come to develop. And so um, it, it's not surprising that the French would have been interested in, in acquiring uh, archers to help counterbalance the uh, English archers. So it's, was France um, compensating the Scottish crown in some way for the men being sent over, or was this um, just out of friendship to the, the old alliance that I guess at this point was was over 100 years old? Um, was there any, I guess I should just put this way, was there anything in it for Scotland other than snubbing the English? Okay, so yes, and that's that's actually complicated because there was absolutely definitely nothing in it for the French crown because the king of Scotland was in the English army. Hmm. Um, he, he had been captured and uh, um, was actually serving with Henry V. Okay, I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... The Scots um, were led by a, the king's cousin, uh, a fellow Stuart, um, the Earl of Buchan, and um, so it was a, it was a recurring problem for Scotland uh, because he this was the second uh, Scottish king to be captured by the. English, uh, and of course the, the English had also earlier in the war captured the King of France, John II, and uh, David David of Scotland had also been been captured, and once the king is a prisoner of the English, the king's main interest is to get out, right? <laughs> um, and uh, the. There, there are some in in Scotland who feel, okay, well, our main interest is to get our king back, right? And then mm -hmm. there are other people uh, who don't really think that. It's more, you know, well, he's the king, um, but, you know, we really have to look out for the interests of Scotland. And then there are other people who don't want the king to come back, because as long as the king is in English prison, uh, they're in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, makes for some pretty tricky politics. Um, so the French uh, who were, so the, the Scots who were aiding the French, as you say, were doing so uh, as part of a long uh, tradition, uh, a long alliance, which was indeed founded on 
it's not just sticking it to the the, the English or thumbing your nose at the English. It's uh, basically mutual assistance between the French and the Scots uh, to um, prevent, you know, if, if if the English defeat either one of them, then they can turn their full attention against the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was actually a, a saying um, that was supposedly um, prevalent at the English court, which was that uh, he who will France win must with Scotland first begin. Hmm. In other words, you got to get your back taken care of if you're going to go fight the French. And, of course, from hmm. the French standpoint, that means, hey, as long as you keep the Scots in the fight. They'll um, leave us alone. Right. They'll leave us alone, or at least they won't be able to use their full strength against us. Hmm. Um, and uh, so that's that's a main reason why the French uh, continually gave support to uh, the Scots, um, was to keep them as a thorn in the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, keep them as a thorn in the, in the back of the English. Um, and so why would the, the Scots help the French? Well, again, if the French go down, and, you know, in, in 1420s, uh, the French. This is right after the Treaty of Troyes. Um, mm-hmm. Henry V looks like you know a, a sort of an unstoppable conqueror, um, and has just signed a treaty by which, as soon as Charles VI dies, Henry V is to become the King of France. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, if France and England are united under the same king, there is zero chance that Scotland will maintain its independence. Mm-hmm. So that's one side of the motivation for, you know, you said, what, what's in it for the Scots? Uh, another one is, like I said, Scotland is poor and France is, France is rich. So uh, a chance to make good money uh, serving as French soldiers um, is, uh, is, a popular, uh, you know, that's that's a, that's that's a pretty good recruiting uh, opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the Scots. Um, there was like a, a a saying in France that the Scots were uh, mutton eaters and wine guzzlers, um, and you know what? In Scotland, they. They they, uh, they were eating a lot of uh, you know oat oat biscuits and drinking beer and not getting to eat a lot of meat or or drink a lot of wine. Yeah, that would have been an improvement. <laughs> Absolutely. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, Scotland is poor compared to England. England is poor compared to France. So. Mm-hmm. Um. And and when you get somebody like. Uh, you know, uh, if if we do have the right Carmichael, that he does become the Bishop of Orleans, or the Earl of Buchan uh, becomes uh, Duke of Omal or somewhere like that. He gets a, a French dukedom, um, 
and uh, a number of the other Scots get pretty rich rewards that are way more valuable than their estates in in uh, in Scotland. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> when I was um, in Angers, I spent a lot of time visiting the Chateau d'Angers, and it was. And, I mean, and it, by this point, I think. I think it must have been close to 200 years old, at least. I, I think it was built in the 1200s, um, mm-hmm. and it was incredible. I mean, it was amazing and, and very French, you know, and um, not just was it a huge fortress, but it was very beautiful and had a beautiful chapel and formal gardens, and um, Scotland had a long way to go to catch up to it financially. I, I could see how I'd be somebody might be eager to volunteer for an all-expenses-paid trip to France, even if it included some fighting. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you real quick about um, the position of being bishop over Orléans. The thing about it that's really interesting to me, besides the, the the status change and the economic change involved, is um, um, just the the brush up with with history and almost with mythology for me, because um, the the source that I mentioned that, that I had been reading said that this this bishop Carmichael was likely present at the coronation of the Dauphin, um, at which I assume Joan of Arc would have also been present. Um, yeah. And she, she's just, yeah, she's just such a, a larger-than-life figure. And I would assume, I would, you could please correct me on this um, if I'm mistaken, but I would assume really com- compared to Joan of Arc, the Scottish influence at this point in the war was very, very small compared to, to how she impacted the morale of the French army. Um what what do when historians are looking at at this period of the war and looking at at Joan of Arc um what's kind of the modern consensus of of her impact was it was it mostly just moral or was a lot of it strategy that's actually a uh, debated subject um and i think there's no doubt that a big part of it was uh, to restore morale, um, you know, the, the French sort of had a lot of resources, but if you go in with a defeatist attitude, um, because you can't can't beat the English and you always lose to them, um, you know, there's, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and if, on the other hand, um, <clears throat> you've got God on your side, uh, well then, then you can beat the English, and if you believe, right, then you can't lose. Right, and, and if you believe that you uh, um, can beat the English, then um, then then you can, right, or at least you have a good shot. And so that was clearly the most important contribution. Um, but right, I mean that's closely bound up with. So if Joan is saying, hey, you can beat the English and you should go beat the English and you should attack, right? You should be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a morale thing, but it is also strategy, right? It is also strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, go on the offensive, attack, don't stand on the defensive. Uh, keep going into that wall. Um, keep Or, or, or there, there are the English, put spurs to your horses, you will beat them. You know, that is a... Uh, a form of strategy. 
Um, and in her retrial, which is, you know, not not a source without problems. Uh, so, you know, she was mm -hmm. she was the heretic and then burned at the stake and then later uh Charles the Seventh uh had a retrial, a rehabilitation trial. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at that trial, which we have the testimony of, um a lot of her old companions in arms uh, describe their experiences with her. And, of course, they had an agenda. The agenda was to show, yeah. no, being a witch, she's, you know, sent by God. Um, so you don't, so you have to take that into account. But in their testimony, they do say things like um, she could cite artillery as well as a experienced captain. Um, and that... Um, Could could ride a horse well as a as an experienced man at arms, and uh, so and give specific instances where you know she did give good military advice, uh, or at least military advice that turned out to be good, like mm -hmm. get ready to send the boats across the moat or the river at Orleans, and uh, and then just then the wind shifts. And, and they can. So it's actually almost like prophecy rather than, um, and in fact, it's not just almost like it is. She's she's depicted as somebody with a gift of prophecy uh, as well as uh, foresight. And of course, the, the difference between those two can be pretty thin. Um, mm -hmm. So so Kelly DeVries, for example, in his book on Joan of Arc, uh, definitely argues that she was important as a commander, not just as a mascot. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that I suppose that's probably now the um, mostly accepted position. That's interesting. I'm glad she's been rehabilitated in both ways. Then, for the sake of history, um, I'd like just to ask you two more questions. Um, to be respectful of your time, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your specialties. I've seen that you've written a lot of things about the Hundred Years' War, but not exclusive to that. Um, what are your your focuses, whether they're personal or professional, and um, and why do you spend so much time on hundred the Hundred Years' War? Mm. Um, well, the Hundred Years' War definitely is my my specialty, um, and in, in fact, really the 14th century part. Um, and you, it, it's a, it's a tremendous capital investment to to become expert about uh, a subject enough to write your dissertation and and then you know your first book, um, and so uh, you, you know once you've got it, you write a bunch of stuff because <laughs> 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 all that work. Um, <laughs> You know, you you have as you were working on the initial project, you know, you're also sort of storing up and and keeping track of information that is coming from the same sources, but doesn't necessarily uh, apply to the topic you were working on. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to just you know you you've you've sort of found it, cataloged it, mentally organized it, 
And so that's a natural thing to then come back to and do something else that's not the main project, but where you're you're not starting from scratch. You're able to use um, the knowledge that you've developed in the first project. Um, and then you tend to sort of broaden out, particularly, you know, you, you're as a teacher, um, you have to teach more broadly than what you write about. Uh, so, uh, you know, I teach a course on ancient and medieval warfare <clears throat> that covers uh, the whole Middle Ages. Um, so that gets me reading about, you know, the Battle of Hastings or mm -hmm. the Crusades or, or what have you. Uh, and then you try and see patterns where what, what you know in real depth uh, helps you understand better these other things that you don't know in as much depth, but that you, you have studied and read about and read the sources for, uh, and maybe in ways that somebody who is, you know, a crusade historian, you might be able to see things about the crusades that they don't see because what you know about the Hundred Years' War, where the sources are more in-depth and richer, uh, explains to you, enables you to understand how something works. Uh, mm. that, that is then also, when you look, when you go to the Crusades, you're like, oh yeah, that's the same as it is in the Hundred Years' War. Um, and so I see exactly what's going on here because I have that analogy to connect it to. Um, and so you tend to sort of spread out. And so, so my first book was Edward III. Um, and then my second was just warfare in general in the Middle Ages from the soldier's perspective. Um, and I've even been, and, and some of that then carries forward into uh, early modern warfare and tactics in particular and strategy, uh, which are my, my main, the main things. And they, I also teach medieval, or excuse me, I teach military history generally. So, uh, that, for example, got me reading a lot of uh, Carl von Clausewitz, um, and uh, I've even written about Clausewitz, a couple of things, who's a, a post-Napoleonic theorist, um, and very useful, actually, uh, for understanding even medieval warfare. So, yeah. Uh, but but you have to, as I said, the, the, the teaching forces you to broaden out, and then you want to make cross connections between what you've studied in the greatest depth and what you're uh, plunging into in new areas. Sure, I could understand that. When when you're when you're teaching um, cadets at West Point. What do you hope that they take, you know, it, here in 2021 from studying the Hundred Years' War? Mm -hmm. What are the, the the correlations to our current day? Sure. Well, there are a lot. Um, I mean, there's really – boy, I could go on and on. Um, I would say actually the most important thing – so I actually do a uh, uh, like a senior colloquium that's just on the Hundred Years' War with a few students. Um and the most important thing is not actually learning about the Hundred Years' War. It's learning about how to learn about the Hundred Years' War. 
because one of the great things about studying medieval history, and this would go for any aspect of medieval history, is you're constantly having to deal with thin and contradictory sources and then try and make sense of them. Like, you know, was it uh, John de Carmichael, or was, and was that the same as this other um, John de Carmichael? Uh, how do I figure that out? Mm -hmm. And so my, my students are, are future officers, and in war, um, the core problem of war, uh, well, that's too strong, there, there, there's more than one, but a core problem of war for commanders is the fact that you always have to make decisions based on information that's coming to you that you don't have time to clarify necessarily. So you have to rely on fragmentary and conflicting evidence and make a decision based on it. So the practice of dealing with fragmentary and conflicting evidence is I think super useful for cadets. Um, but then there are also uh, all kinds of things where you do see a, a rhyme or a resonance between the warfare of the Hundred Years' War and modern warfare um, in a way that actually makes the Hundred Years' War in some respects much more useful to study than, say, World War II. Uh, because mm -hmm. in France during the Hundred Years' War, for substantial portions of it, uh, France is a failed state, and there are pockets of warlords um, controlling the local area for their own benefit and uh, uh, exercising borrowed authority and violence um, under some loose affiliation with a government somewhere that actually has very little power or, or influence over them. So... Uh, warlordism in uh, Somalia or Afghanistan uh, is actually something that you can learn quite a bit about in terms of what are the questions to ask, not what are the answers, but what are the questions to ask to figure out how it works there, um, and you know how you how you need to focus on. Um, how warlords exercise power and how you can break that exercise of power or, and how you combine operations of large mobile forces with uh, little pockets of armed men all over the place uh, in their own little uh, centers exercising power locally. Um, so that's, that's a, a pretty big analogy. Um, you can look at alliances, for example. So the alliance between France and Scotland on the one hand uh, and between England and Burgundy on the other hand at this particular period um, are really just vital and understanding how the Duke of Bedford um, after Henry V's death sustained the Anglo-Burgundian alliance for a number of years and then in the end lost it and then thereby pretty much lost the Hundred Years' War um, can have resonance with our understanding of how we need to sustain our connections with uh, our allies today and what kind of 
actions down on the battlefield level even can undermine uh, political and cultural alignments uh, that can sustain an alliance. That's very interesting. I, <clears throat> particularly, I think um, you describing France as a failed state. I would not have thought about it at the time, but you're absolutely right. After the Treaty of Troyes, it was divided into three chunks, right? I mean, Burgundy, yeah, at least an English three. chunk, and then the Dauphin. Yeah, at least three. And who, who knows what else was scattered around? Brittany um, was also practically uh, an independent chunk. And, of course, actually, and in the English chunk is actually two English chunks uh, down around Gascony and in Normandy. And then into that's right, the southern one. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I and, think and the the Bretons have been they've always been good Celts like the Scots and pretty <laughs> independent. <laughs> actually, it's funny you say that because actually you're you're right. It's like the Scots in that there's good Celts and then there's not. Right. I mean, so just like in Scotland, you have the uh, the Highlanders uh, who are who are Celtic and speak um, Gaelic, uh, and then you have plenty of lowland Scots who are actually, you know, English speakers and not particularly Celtic. Um, it's the same in Brittany. There, there are uh, Breton, Bretonant, who uh, speak uh, a, a Celtic language and are mainly in the West. Um, and then as you get farther east in Brittany, uh, they're, they're much more French, basically, um, mm -hmm. and... Um, genetically. Yes. Um, I was fortunate to visit Brittany when I was there, and um, I found it very, I found much of it very similar to me when I was thinking about Scotland as well, not the least of which was the weather. Um, Clay and Carmichael, is, as you mentioned, you're talking about Highland and Lowland. Uh, Lowland Scott, and I think traditionally border reavers, and as a, a much younger woman when I was getting into my heritage and, and exploring it, um, I had, in my mind, the romantic vision that lots of Americans have about Scotland, the, the Highlanders, and, and speaking Gaelic and wearing kilts. Um, it was a little disappointed when I got to know the Carmichaels more, and it's been a very long time since any Carmichael spoke Gaelic, if ever. We're pretty close to the English border, and um, and I, you know, I've been Protestant for a long time. Many of the things that I apply to Scotland do not necessarily apply to Carmichaels. So we're we're really proud to have this chunk of history, um, where for at least one point we were definitively not English, and supported our French friends in that. So we'll take a, we take what we can get as border Scots. It's not nearly as romantic. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate so much, Professor Rogers, you taking the time to answer my questions on this, and it it really cleared up a lot for me because as you mentioned, there are not a ton of sources. And they can be pretty contradictory. Um, and it's just really interesting to talk to somebody that has a lot of passion about it. Um, I certainly get excited about it, but I'm probably the only person in North Dakota that cares at all. <laughs> and, and you obviously, as you said, this is your this is your specialty. You've spent a lot of your time um, learning and, and teaching about this. You mentioned that you had some books out, and I'd I'd like to know the titles of them so that I can um, when I when I write up this article and put it in our. I think I told you, but our clan has a newsletter that goes out to all the members. And so in honor of the 600th anniversary of Beaujet, we're kind of sitting like a special edition one. And I'd really like to be able to, to direct people to your book so that they can move beyond this little battle into the 
the wider history of the time period. Do you mind telling me the names of your books and, and where people can find them? Uh, well, I guess they could find them on Amazon. And uh, uh, the first is uh, War, Cruel, and Sharp, English Strategy under Edward III from 1327 to 1360, which does, by the way, involve uh, quite a bit of wars against the Scots. Um, and uh, then the other is uh, Soldiers' Lives Through History, colon, the Middle Ages. I really like to read that one. I think that would be fascinating. Um, I, I spent a lot of time in France. If, if I was able to go around and travel, I'm focusing on the medieval period. Um, and I, what's that? Why am I forgetting it? Um, the Cluny Museum in Paris. That's yes. the medieval. Yes. Yep. Oh, it's ama It's incredible. I could have spent an entire week there. Um, it is really such a fascinating period. Okay, there you go. And you, you mentioned that book earlier. That one focuses more on. I mean, I'm sure it's a large picture, but does it focus more on kind of regular lay people when you talk about soldiers in this period? Um, well, uh, I mean, by lay people is of course technically people who are not in the church. That's um, true. Let me redefine. I should say uh, regular people, people that were not um, not knighted, not you know, without special titles. Yeah. So I, 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 as much as I can, um, but the, the soldiers that we know more about in the Middle Ages um, are more likely to be uh, knights and, and up. Um, yeah. But yes, it does definitely do. I did what I could to. Uh, I mean, it focuses on on the common soldiers, but in a lot of the Middle Ages, even the common soldiers are, you know, the top ten percent of of the social pyramid. Mhm. Mm Which is an interesting thing, I think, vis-a-vis yes. -vis who I consider a, like a soldier today. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So. You know, there's that old idea of, of uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase of an officer and a gentleman, right? So, mm -hmm. um, of course, a gentleman really means etymologically, and, and when that phrase was coined, somebody who's well-born. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so really sort of what happened as armies grew tremendously in the late Middle Ages and, and later uh, was that uh, the nobility moved from being, or the gentility moved from being the soldiers to just the leaders of the soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's actually one of the biggest changes between the, the Middle Ages and the modern period. That's an interesting angle. To, sorry, it, it triggers something for me because I'm, I started a, a, a reading group in 20, well, not, I didn't begin it, I'm participating in a reading group that um, goes through December of this year. It's reading War and Peace, and it's a chapter a day. Um, and of course, yeah, that's centered around the Napoleonic Wars, which are mm -hmm. I, when I when I think about it, and of course, you know, the the book is written from the perspective of the Russian aristocracy, and like you said, those those guys that are enlisting are are becoming officers. They're not foot soldiers, but there were hundreds of thousands of people involved in these conflicts. Yep. Um, and it's hard not to think of a lot of them just as your bodies when when you're using so many. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting off track, but it's just incredible for me to think of the way warfare's gotten to be, and I hope it doesn't stay this way, but where so
some people at the top are making decisions that treat the thousands and thousands of young men under them as cannon fodder, basically. That's at least how I feel about the Napoleonic conflict. I'm, I'm interested to read through the book and see what Tolstoy thinks of it. Anyway, I'd never thought of that before, like you said, that initially being a soldier was probably pretty expensive to get good at and to get the materials for, and it right. might not have been something that everybody was, you know, not every farm boy was picking up to go do. No, indeed not. And um, as you say, the, the, the equipment is kind of the key because in the Middle Ages, almost without exception, although not quite without exception, uh, soldiers provide their own equipment. And their equipment uh, mm. is, uh, you know, often includes a horse and armor, which are very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas in the modern world, of course, uh, the state collects his taxes and provides the soldiers with their equipment, which on the one hand means uh, that they can, you know, pull in a lot more people um, if they have the money. Um, they're not required to limit themselves to the better off. Even the archers, uh, at least on, in England, I, I don't really know to the extent this is true in um, with the Scottish armies that came over, but the, the English archers in the Hundred Years' War were mostly mounted archers. Um, and uh, as I said, they had to, you know, be well off enough to provide their own horses generally. I mean, you know, you could mm -hmm. make it with your captain or advance on wages, that sort of thing. But um, generally they were people, you know, they had to, be, I mean, it also doesn't do you a good, any good to have a horse if you can't ride. And the people who could ride uh, tended to be the people who were, you know, not at the bottom of society. Mm -hmm. uh, so... You know, it was being a, even a, an archer was more of a, to the extent that you could use this term for the time, it was more of a middle class thing, not a not a bottom of the peasantry thing. That's so interesting. I feel like I I read something recently in an um, it was in some sort of archaeological journal, but looking at English archers and how overdeveloped one side of their body was. I thought, that's incredible. That is so much strength and investment, honestly, in just that one arm. Well, yeah, the English archers, uh, like I said, the, those bows are just really, really strong. They're not at all like, you know, uh, you might have had experience of in gym class or something. Um, they could be 150-pound draw weight or more. It's incredible to think about, especially since, with modern ammunition, it doesn't particularly matter what sort of physical strength you have. Mm -hmm. But to be a good archer, yeah, it mattered a great deal. Yes, you had to Changes, be very. Yeah. Just fascinating. I'm interested to see, too. Um, I, so I live near the Grand Forks Air Force Base, and they um, do a lot of development in, in drone warfare in training um, people how to use drones over there. And I think that's another really interesting development to watch how warfare will move away from maybe from really um, interacting face-to-face -face conflict at all, at least for nations that can afford it. Yeah, well, it, that's possible. I mean, we've been saying that for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet. You know, people kept saying, oh, it's really just going to be planes dropping precision-guided munitions, and then we got to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but it, it, you know, technology is... Um, just because we've been wrong about it before doesn't mean we're, that's wrong now. And drones and robots are really 
We've come a long way. For sure. I appreciate it so much, and all of us at Clan Carmichael USA are, are really, really grateful for your input, and we're excited to celebrate this anniversary and, and bummed that we're not able to go to France. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to help. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Rogers. Have a good night. Thanks again to our Carmichael Clan USA newsletter editor for taking the time to talk to Professor Rogers and for providing our listeners with this fascinating discussion. As we approach the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Beauget in March, keep an eye out for more information and history to go up on the Carmichael Clan website celebrating this major event in Carmichael Clan history. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show and get the latest episodes delivered to you. You can subscribe on iTunes and also now on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, or even if you don't, leave us a review. Your five-star reviews help to promote the show and make it easier for others to find us. And last, don't forget to go to www.clancarmichaelusa.com to sign up for the newsletter and to renew your Carmichael Clan membership for 2021 if you haven't already. Until next time, to your prayer.